0: Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to IRIS and to the reading of the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, February 10th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's take a look at the weather forecast first thing. This from KCRG in Cedar Rapids. Sunny day today, great weekend ahead. Sunny sky is likely all across eastern Iowa today. Plan on highs generally in the lower 30s. This weekend. The weather still looks very nice and we should be able to reach 40 degrees in many areas tomorrow afternoon. The same can be said for Sunday, though more clouds will likely move in during the afternoon and evening. Early next week, plan on highs to generally stay in the 40s with the next chance of precipitation coming on Tuesday. At this time, it appears that system will be all rain with some spots potentially picking up over a half inch. Sunrise this morning was at 7.13 a.m. and the sun sets at 5.35 p.m. Looking at the stories on the front page of the Courier today, we have these. State error may affect city's tax valuations. Airport installs x-ray screening. 83-year-old spin instructor says listen to your body. And let's begin reading the top story on the page, Malpractice award limits okayed $2 million for hospital stays, $1 million for doctors in damages that are non-economic. Story written by Aaron Murphy and Caleb McCullough, the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. Dateline Des Moines. Cash awards for pain, suffering, and other non-economic complications from medical malpractice lawsuits would be capped at $2 million for hospitals and $1 million for doctors under a measure that soon will be state law. Republican state lawmakers approved the proposal Wednesday, and Governor Kim Reynolds has signaled that she will sign it into law. The proposals will cap non-economic damages in medical malpractice cases. It does not cap economic or punitive damages. Supporters of the caps argue they are needed so hospitals and other health care centers can avoid fiscal chaos caused by high-dollar jury awards and insurance. Opponents say the caps limit the ability of victims and their families to fully obtain justice. And, they argue, large verdicts are not a problem in Iowa, as very few medical malpractice lawsuits go to trial in the state. According to a fiscal note accompanying the bill, about 160 medical malpractice lawsuits were filed each year since 2017, of which only 8% went to trial. Iowa is one of 22 states that does not have a cap on non-economic damages in medical malpractice. According to a 2020 report from New York Law School's Center for Justice and Democracy, other states that do have the limits, cap non-economic damages ranging between $250,000 and roughly $800,000. Of the states that share a border with Iowa, Wisconsin, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Missouri, have caps on non-economic damages in medical malpractice cases. Minnesota and Illinois do not. Representatives of the medical community have pointed in particular to two judgments from 2022 in Iowa, a $97.4 million award to a family whose newborn suffered brain damage when its head was crushed due to healthcare care providers using improper procedures during delivery, and a $27 million award to a man whose case of bacterial meningitis was misdiagnosed as the flu. Both chambers of the Iowa legislature spent hours debating the proposal on Wednesday. The legislation, House File 161, passed the Senate by a 29 to 20 vote and the House by a 54 to 46 vote. It was supported almost exclusively by Republicans. Representative Ken Crokin from Davenport was the only Democrat legislator in either chamber to vote in favor of the bill. Not all Republicans supported the measure, however, five Republicans in the Senate and 11 in the House voted against it. Republicans who opposed the measure said it puts a value on life, which they said is contrary to Republicans' pro-life positions. Representative Mark Cisneros, a Republican from Muscatine, slammed his party's leadership for prioritizing the bill. Quote, Will you seriously allow yourselves to be bullied into bending your moral compass away from the people of Iowa, and point it directly toward the billion-dollar corporations who want this handout? He asked, quote, contrary to popular belief, you can say no to leadership, unquote. Representative Ann Meyer, a Republican for, from Fort Dodge, who led the bill in the House, she said she lost a son because of a medical error when he was five years old. I was very angry at that time as well, she said. Quote, no amount of money will bring Nick back, and I feel that loss every single day, unquote. But, she said, the bill is necessary to improve the offering of health care in the state and attract doctors. It is one of many bills the legislature is considering to enhance medical care, she said. Quote, I'm trying to keep the health system intact for all of Iowa, from one corner of the state to the next, she said. Quote, for 3.2 million Iowans that depend on us to look at the entire health system and make sure that they have access to care, unquote. However, opponents noted that the other states with medical malpractice caps are also struggling to find enough doctors. They said insurance reimbursement rates are a far more pressing issue. Quote, I look forward to your work to increase provider reimbursement rates Senator Zach Walls of Coralville, the leader of the minority party, Senate Democrats, quote, I'm not holding my breath, unquote. Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Slushwig, who managed the legislation in the Senate, indicated another part of the motivation was to rein in money made by lawyers involved in those cases. Quote, nobody wants to be there in a medical malpractice lawsuit except the guy getting a third, Schultz said during Senate debate, referring to lawyers who receive shares of jury awards. Quote, folks were being poached. It's just got to be fixed. Reynolds highlighted the idea of capping awards in her annual Condition of the State address earlier this month. Quote, I'm grateful to the legislature for passing reasonable medical malpractice reform, allowing Iowa's healthcare care industry to become stronger and more accessible, she said, in a statement after the vote. Quote, to the OBGYNs and physicians who have been worried about practicing in Iowa, we are ready for you. These reforms balance the needs of injured patients with the needs of all Iowans to have a robust health care system. As I said in my Condition of the State, these reforms could not wait another year. Next, we have a story filed by Maria Cooper and Andy Malone, titled, State Error May Affect Cities' Tax Valuations, Growing Tax Base Moot Under Rollback Change. Dateline Waterloo. Black Hawk County's tax base grew this year, but that increase may become moot for its cities after a state miscalculation. Reports compiled by the County Auditor's Office show the total taxable value of all land and buildings expected to owe real estate taxes in the next fiscal year increased by 2.3 percent, or just over $150 million. However, the residential rollback, the proportion of a property's value that is taxable, will likely drop when state legislation is adopted to correct the error contained in a past bill. The rollback would go from 56.49% to 54.65%, and cities' taxable property valuations would drop. Waterloo saw a 1.2% increase, or about a $32 million increase, before the potential change. Bridget Wood, the finance manager for Waterloo, said most of the increase came from tax increment finance districts. The city has seven TIF districts, the Northeast Industrial Park, Midport American Business Park at the airport, Martin Road Business Park, Rath Industrial Area, and San Marnon Business Park, Downtown Waterloo, and Logan Plaza. Countywide, taxable value in the TIF districts grew by $654 million last year. That value generally helps pay for economic development costs and incentives. Woods said the 1.2% rise in taxable value is less than what the cities have seen in recent years. Quote, the higher the taxable values in a city, the lower the levy rates could be due to increase in property tax revenue at current levy rates, she said. When taxable values decrease, that is when levy rates will most likely increase to make up the shortfall in taxable values relating to direct property tax revenue, unquote. Cedar Falls saw a 3.2% change in taxable values, or a $72 million increase. Quote, our assessed values increased by 2%, but it's a challenge when inflation is 6% to 8%, said Finance and Business Operations Director Jennifer Rodenbeck. Quote, we're always... Hopeful that growth can keep up with increased costs. Unquote. However, it was borderline impossible to expect values would keep pace with this year in Cedar Falls. Quote, if we don't end up with more revenues, then we might have to look at reducing expenses where we can, she added. Hiking the tax rate is often another consideration as well. Rodenbeck said commercial, industrial, and residential properties saw increases in assessed values of 3.7% and 1.9% respectively. Altogether, it equated to slightly less growth in valuations than seen in recent years, when a reassessment does not occur. This year, Wood said, apart from TIFFs, the error made at the state level regarding multi-residential property class being included in the residential property tax class increased the taxable valuation numbers. In 2021, Governor Kim Reynolds signed a law that included multi-residential properties in the residential property class. This began in the 2022 assessment year for taxes due in the fall of 2023 and spring of 2024. The bill eliminated multi-residential as a classification, but no changes were made to the section of Iowa code that defines the formula used to calculate the number establishing the statewide taxable value for each property class. The Iowa Department of Revenue realized the issue in late 2022 when staff calculated the property tax rollback rate. Wood said if the classification is removed for 2022, the city will no longer have a 1.2% increase in taxable valuation. She said another issue that affected the tax base was the two-tiered commercial-industrial rollback. Quote, We lost a lot of taxable value in commercial and industrial property classes due to that change, she said. It does show up as negative growth on the valuation reports, unquote. While the tax base is an important factor in the revenue streams, It is also a measure of economic vitality that plays a factor in setting bond rates and interest rates when governments borrow money. City councils, the County Board of Supervisors, school boards, Hawkeye Community College trustees, and other taxing entities will set budgets and property tax rates in March and April based on the new taxable values. Those budgets will take effect on July 1st. Next, Waterloo Airport receives new baggage checking technology, filed by Maria Cooper, and it begins with a photograph of a TSA officer running a bag through the new X-ray machine. Dateline Waterloo Travelers going through the Waterloo Regional Airport will see an expedited luggage process after new technology was installed. The airport recently unveiled an X-ray machine to screen checked baggage, for those departing the airport. Before this, the Transportation Security Administration checked the bags by hand. Quote, it's a much better experience for the passenger and their security benefits, too. Regional TSA spokesperson Jessica Bailey said at a demonstration of the luggage checking process on Thursday. Mailing said instead of two-dimensional x-ray image, a computer screen shows a 3D image that the TSA officers can rotate and stretch to let them identify items in the bag, resulting in fewer bag checks. The agency is required to screen all checked luggage for explosives and other security threats. The machine is capable of screening up to 375 bags per hour at full capacity. Quote, This is unusual for Waterloo that we have this kind of upgraded technology at our facility. Airport director Keith Kaspari said, quote, usually a device like that is at busier airports. The airport also has a similar machine to screen carry-on luggage, which was installed in the summer of 2022. Quote, we're not trying to just sell passenger confidence, but passenger convenience, Kaspari said. The airport is going through a number of upgrades in other places as well. At this week's city council meeting, Four different projects were on the agenda. The Council awarded a $25,740 contract to K&W Electric of Cedar Falls to improve Hangar 3A. The project will replace old fluorescent lights from the 1970s with LED lights for the aircraft Bay Area lighting. It will be funded with Federal Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act dollars. A professional service agreement was approved with the AECOM Technical Services Incorporated in an amount not to exceed $18,200 for improvements to Hangar 4. The project will replace the heating, ventilating, and air conditioning system in the shop areas. That is paid for through the Commercial Service Vertical Infrastructure Project which is an Iowa Department of Transportation-funded grant. Two public hearings were also set for March 6th. One is for the replacement of the HVAC controls in the passenger terminal building. The other is for the closed-circuit TV security and video system in the passenger terminal building. Next, we have a story that Melody Parker filed, titled Lana Hockrider, 83, to lead American Heart Month spin event at Cedar Falls Recreation Center, and the story begins with a photograph of Lana Hawkrider, 83, and she's le- as she leads a class on Saturday to mark American Heart Month at the Cedar Falls Recreation Center. Dateline Cedar Falls. Lana Hawkrider will lead a spin class Saturday called The Beat Goes On to mark American Heart Month at the Cedar Falls Recreation Center beginning at 10 a.m. At 83, Hawk Rider, a certified spin instructor, has been teaching spin classes for 13 years. Her classes are regularly filled with seasoned citizens as well as younger riders. Quote, the heart ride is for experienced riders and for people who have never done a spin class before. It's a great workout, Hawk Rider said. New participants will receive attention and instruction on how to ride properly. Quote, you just have to be able to get on a bike. I can adjust the ride for beginners and riders can go at their own pace. Unquote. The event is free to rec center members. Non-members can participate for a drop-in fee of $5 for students and participants over 65 and $10 for others. A bike can be reserved in advance or just come on Saturday, said Hawk Rider. There will be door prizes, blood pressure checks, goodie bags, and more. Hawk Rider wants to bring attention to American Heart Month, she explained, because she is a cardiac survivor who has four heart stents after being diagnosed with blocked arteries in her 70s. Quote, If I can save one person by something I say or do, at least one, that would be nice. I want people to listen to their bodies, to not be afraid about what they can do, she said. Hawk Rider has always been active, including riding in 20 ragbries, But in her late 60s, she wanted to be more physically fit, lose a few pounds, and perhaps stave off common ailments often associated with aging. Rowing, spinning, and biking the trails kept her busy and active and eventually she began teaching senior classes. At 70, Hawk Rider began feeling extremely tired and instinctively knew something was wrong. At her family's urging, she went to a doctor and underwent a series of tests. Tests revealed nothing. Hawk Rider was told that I have a heart of a 30-year-old because of being fit, and she was sent home. But I said, no, something is wrong. But I was the cowardly lion. I didn't want to go back, but I did because I listened to my body." Unquote. A cardiologist diagnosed her with two severely blocked arteries. Being physically fit, her heart had been able to push blood through, but she required stints to improve blood flow. After three months in cardiac rehab, she was back to her energetic self. At 72, she became a certified spin instructor. Several years ago, She required two additional stents, but her overall good health helped her recover quickly and get back on the bike saddle and start spinning again. Quote, I'm thrilled to be alive and teaching, and I want to get more people motivated to do it with me, to take that journey and make that step. I've watched people start out hanging off the handlebars in their first spin classes, and then later they're out on bikes riding the trails. Quote, it can change a life. It changed my life. You can see and feel tangible results, Hawk Ryder said, who was recognized in 2020 as one of the Courier's 8 over 80 honorees. She teaches Jump Start Cycle at 9 a.m. Fridays at the Rec Center. Now, let's turn the page and see what Netflix has in store for us subscribers. Netflix Steps Up Effort to Get Paid for Account Sharing This comes from the Associated Press. Netflix has a plan to deal with rampant account sharing, a program that lets subscribers pay extra to share their account with people outside their household. The streaming giant introduced paid sharing in Canada, New Zealand, Portugal, and Spain on Wednesday. It was previously rolled out in multiple markets in Latin America. While Netflix won't say when paid sharing will come to other countries, Some version of the plan is expected to be introduced in the United States in the next few weeks. About one-third of Netflix's subscribers live in the U.S. and Canada. Netflix has more than 231 million paid subscribers in 190 countries. The Los Gatos, California-based company estimates that 100 million households are sharing their accounts with others which impacts the company's ability to invest in new programming. We've always made it easy for people who live together to share their Netflix account with features like profiles and multiple streams, the company said in a blog post on Wednesday. While these have been hugely popular, they've also created confusion about when and how you can share Netflix. Starting Wednesday, Netflix said it will allow standard and premium subscribers in Canada, Spain, New Zealand and Portugal to set up an extra account for up to 2 people they don't live with for an extra monthly fee. The monthly fee varies by country. In Canada, it's $7.99 Canadian dollars, while in Portugal it's 3.99 euros. Netflix said it will also allow people who have been borrowing accounts to transfer their viewing history and other preferences to a new paid subscription. Netflix didn't say what actions it will take if subscribers continue to share accounts outside their household. In a conference call with investors in January, Netflix co-CEO Greg Peters said the company is trying to be thoughtful and gradual in its rollout. Quote, it's worth noting that this will not be a universally popular move, so there will be current members who are unhappy with this move. We'll see a bit of cancel reaction to that, he said. We think of this as similar to what we see when we raise prices. Next, we turn the page again. Now we're at the Cedar Valley section, and the top article is titled, UNI's Black Student Union Welcomes All People in Celebrating Black History Month. Andy Malone wrote this story, Dateline Cedar Falls, the University of Northern Iowa's Black Student Union, has sought to turn Black History Month into more of a celebration during the annual time dedicated to education and often emotional reflection on the past. Student leaders also made clear that they'd love to see anybody from UNI or within the greater Cedar Valley community of any background and culture, participate. The happenings continue at UNI, a predominantly white institution, through the end of the month and beginning next month in the 51st year since BSU's founding on campus. Quote, you can still learn a lot through a party and celebration, said Anna Stevens, a senior from Ames who is BSU's secretary. The Black History Month event kicked off on campus on February 1st with food, games, and a live DJ. Other events happened in the days that followed, including the dinner and show centered around Ayana Gregory's one-woman production, Daughter of the Struggle. Still scheduled for this month is the Tunnel of Oppression at 6 p.m. on February 22nd in Lang Hall, an educational experience showcasing oppression in the black community. It tends to be the most heavy of all the events slated to happen on campus, according to Stevens. Quote, the tunnel of oppression is really a time to look at where we've come from and looking and acknowledging that the past has happened, said Lexi Gauss, a junior from Cedar Rapids, who is BSU's co-president. Quote, we learned that this is where we're at in history, and then how we get from this point and create change, unquote. Quote, Black history isn't pretty at times, so this is the time when we can all discuss and find what was the beauty in the struggle and create change for future generations, she added. Gause noted people can expect to have tough conversations in a comfortable and safe space in which to discuss and share perspectives. Different rooms highlight examples of how people of color have been oppressed. Topics will include redlining and colorism, to name a few. The evening wraps up with what's called the Equity Walk. The walk leads to change as simple as students of color feeling more welcomed on campus, the student said, or people feeling more open to reaching out to the BSU about collaborating on different projects and initiatives. Quote, It allows us to find that empathy within ourselves, and it shows that you have to treat everyone with kindness, no matter where they come from and what skin they're in, said Gauze. Additionally, BSU events scheduled in celebration of Black History Month include the following. A skate party at 6 p.m. on February 25th inside the Wellness Recreation Center. Show off your skating prowess, and come dressed as your favorite superhero or villain to win a prize. And Just Mercy, movie showing at 7.30 p.m. on February 28th, inside Kamerak Art Building, room 111. And Toast for Change at 6 p.m. on March 3rd, inside the Gallagher Blue Dorn Performing Arts Center. Celebrate the closing of Black History Month and acknowledge those who paved the way. Dressed to impress. BSU has about 60 members and welcomes anybody to join the organization, not only people of color. The student leaders also noted that the teachings of Black History Month don't stop on March 3rd and will continue on, whether that be through additional education happenings or more simply through the continuous building of camaraderie and acceptance throughout campus. Quote, whenever I talk about Black History Month, I always just say Black History Time, said Gauze. We don't want to limit ourselves to just February, unquote. And now, listeners, we want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, February 10th, on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind. Now, since there are no obituaries in today's paper— Let's turn to the opinion section now. Our first editorial comes to us from the Storm Lake Times pilot, and Rick Moraine is the author, Title: Early Activity in the Iowa Legislature. Sometimes it's easy to understand legislative proposals. Other times, not so much. House File 3, filed early in the 2023 session of the Iowa Legislature, falls in the second category. To understand its potential effect on needy people, take a quick look at two pre-existing food programs whose nutritional goals differ. First, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, known as SNAP, the program once called Food Stamps. It exists to help low-income households and those on Medicaid buy groceries. Second, WIC, which aims to meet the specific nutritional needs of its designated recipients, quote, women, infants, and children. WIC doesn't allow recipients to use WIC funds for meat, sliced cheese, butter, flour, or fresh produce. As filed initially, HF3 calls for the food prohibited under SNAP to imitate those forbidden under WIC. This means that HF3 ignores the fact that WIC aims to meet nutritional needs specific to pregnant women, their newborns, and young children, not to the general, though financially challenged, population. The three-member Iowa House subcommittee, to which HF3 was assigned, held an initial meeting last Thursday. It heard strong opposition to the bill from a wide variety of Iowa organizations and individuals. The subcommittee, nevertheless, approved the bill 2-to-1, and referred it to the Full House Health and Human Services Committee. However, subcommittee members assured those interested that the bill would be changed to remove all its initial grocery prohibitions except those on pop and candy. Those changes may indeed be made. They may already have taken place by the time you're reading this column, but the entire process raises a number of questions. First, why was HF3 Draft with so many grocery prohibitions in the first place. The bill has at least 39 House sponsors, all Republicans. That's well over half of the Iowa House GOP caucus. With so many members signing on to it at the onset, why is it being scaled back? Is it the vociferous opposition at the subcommittee meeting? Did the dozens of sponsors not read the bill before it went to subcommittee? Why sign on as a sponsor? if you're not willing to defend it. It's a lot like the old political aphorism. Those are my firm bedrock beliefs, and if you don't like them, I'll change them, unquote. Second, who, specifically, first drew up the bill? Was it the majority leadership of the House, or a few members, or a lobbying group? Did it come from a conservative organization outside the state? The public might like to know where the idea originated. Third, The U.S. Department of Agriculture has to sign off on any state restrictions to the SNAP grocery list. Five states have already submitted similar restrictions to the feds, and USDA has denied all five requests. Why does the Iowa House leadership think the federal government will handle Iowa's request any differently? The real purpose of HF3 may not be in its food prohibitions, so much as in its eligibility requirements. Some legislative leaders have tried for years to reduce the number of Iowans who receive government assistance. One such requirement of the bill severely limits the value of assets an eligible SNAP recipient household owns. Families with $2,750 to $4,250 in assets or savings would be disqualified from SNAP benefits. That requirement would force elimination of a recipient family's struggle to salvage a safety net of even that modest amount, let alone an attempt to put something by for a child's education. Savings of a few thousand dollars don't go very far for a large family, even for one of moderate size. A fallout of the asset limit is that a recipient household with two vehicles would probably exceed that limit. That's a huge burden for households where more than one member has a job or for families with children who need to be transported. Rural areas where job commutes are commonplace and public transportation rare would be especially hard hit under a one-vehicle restriction. Under HF3, if a SNAP recipient receives Medicaid, he or she must work at least 20 hours a week. That's a difficult task for a one-parent household. The recipient may substitute 20 volunteer hours a week instead if the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services approves the specific program or programs for which the recipient volunteers. But the amount of time required remains the same. Obviously, HF3 would demand more administration of the SNAP program in Iowa since tougher eligibility investigations would require more cross-checking of a recipient's income level, work week, assets, Medicaid situation, and other factors. How much additional cost to the state that workload would require is unknown. Fraud and abuse in any government program should, of course, be ferreted out, but HF3, in its dogged determination to accomplish that goal, appears to interfere with the government's responsibility to meet the legitimate needs of low-income and Medicaid households. Sponsors of the bill should explain why they think House File 3 requires incorporation into the Code of Iowa. Article 1 of the Iowa Constitution is entitled Bill of Rights. Section 2 of that article states that, quote, government is instituted for the protection, security, and benefit of the people, unquote. It is not easy to see how HF3 meets that requirement. Our next editorial comes from the New York Times, and it is titled, Biden's a Great President, He Should Not Run Again, written by Michelle Goldberg. And listeners, just note that this op-ed piece was written before President Biden's State of the Union address. Now let's read the editorial. When President Biden gives his State of the Union address on Tuesday, he will have a lot to boast about. He's presided over record job creation and the lowest unemployment rate in over 50 years. Whereas Donald Trump's infrastructure weeks were a running joke, Biden signed the largest infusion of federal funds into infrastructure in more than a decade. His Inflation Reduction Act made a historic investment in clean energy. The head of the International Energy Agency called it the most important climate action since the 2015 Paris Climate Accord. And incidentally, inflation is finally coming down. Biden rallied Western nations to support Ukraine against Russia's imperialist invasion and ended America's long fruitless war in Afghanistan, albeit with an ugly and ignominious exit. His administration capped insulin prices for seniors, codified federal recognition of gay marriage, and shot down that spy balloon everyone was freaking out about. He's on track to appoint more federal judges than Trump. Biden can also take a victory lap for Trump's declining influence. Lots of pundits rolled their eyes when Biden sought to make the midterms a referendum on MAGA movement's threat to the American democracy. Voters didn't. Even more than Trump's defeat in 2020, the loss of Trumpists and candidates like Arizona's Carrie Lake and George's Herschel Walker in 2022, convinced many Republicans they need to move on from their one-time hero. In other words, Biden has been a great president. He's made good on an uncommon number of campaign promises. He should be celebrated on Tuesday, but he should not run again. It's been widely reported that Biden plans to use the State of the Union to set up his case for re-election, there's a rift in the Democratic Party about whether this is wise for an 80-year-old to do. Democratic officials are largely on board, at least publicly, but the majority of Democratic voters are not. Quote, Democrats say he's done a good job, but he's too old, said Sarah Longwell, an anti-Trump Republican strategist who conducts regular voter focus groups. Quote, he'll be closer to 90 than 80 by the end of a second term. Perhaps reflecting this dynamic, a Washington Post-ABC News poll showed that while 78% of Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents approved of the job Biden has done as president, 58% of them wanted a different candidate next year. The arguments for sticking with Biden are not trivial. In addition to his successful record, he has the benefit of incumbency. Primaries are expensive, exhausting, bruising affairs. If only Biden were just a few years younger, it would not be worth the Democratic Party enduring one. But it's hard to ignore the toll of Biden's years, no matter how hard elected Democrats try. In some ways, the more sympathetic you are to Biden, the harder it can be to watch him stumble over his words, a tendency that can't be entirely explained by a stutter. Longwell said Democrats in her focus group talked about holding their breath every time he speaks. And while Biden was able to campaign virtually in 2020 and 2024, we will almost certainly be back to a grueling real-world campaign schedule, which he would have to power through while running the country. It's a Herculean task for a 60-year-old and a near-impossible one for an octogenarian. If Biden faces Trump, who will be 78 next year, that might not matter. It is worrying that the Washington Post-ABC poll, Trump was slightly ahead in a hypothetical rematch, but Trump's negatives tend to go up the more he's in the public eye, and presidential campaign would give him plenty of chances to remind Americans of his unique malignancy. But with many polls showing Trump's popularity slipping, and with the deep-pocketed Koch network lining up against him, chances are good that Biden's competitor, Will be someone much younger, like Ron DeSantis, who will be 46 in 2024. Barring some radical shift in the national mood, the candidates will be vying for leadership of a deeply dissatisfied country desperate for change. For Democrats, the visual contrast alone could be devastating. Plenty of Democrats worry that if Biden steps aside, the nomination will go to Vice President Kamala Harris, who polls poorly. But Democrats have a deep bench, including politicians who've won in important purple states, like Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan and Senator Raphael Warnock of Georgia. Biden said he wanted to be a bridge to the next generation of Democrats. There are quite a few promising people qualified to cross it. A primary will give Democrats the chance to find the one who is suited for this moment. The last time I wrote about Biden being too old, He was at a low moment in his presidency, with inflation soaring and his build-back better agenda stalled. Had he decided not to run for re-election then, it probably would have looked like an admission of failure. Now his political legacy seems more secure. He'll cement it if he has the uncommon wisdom to know when the time has come for a valediction, not a relaunch. Now let's turn to the sports page and see what we have there. Here's an article under the heading, College Men's Basketball. Panthers skid hits four games. I loses to MVC cellar dweller Evansville. The dateline is Evansville, Indiana. Northern Iowa's losing streak hit a new low with a 71-59 to road loss to Evansville Purple Aces on Wednesday. The Panthers' fourth loss in a row also marked Evansville's first win in Missouri Valley Conference play and first since the December 21st win over Bellarmine. UNI head coach Ben Jacobson bluntly summed up the loss. Quote, We have not played like that in a long time, Jacobson said. I do not think we've played like that all year. We have had games when we've turned it over, but not like tonight. We did not play very well tonight, unquote. Jacobson specifically highlighted the Panthers' 19 turnovers, which the Aces managed to turn into points on the other end time and time again. Quote, the points off turnovers is the number, Jacobson said. They scored 24 points over our turnovers. I would say close to half of those were pick sixes. The pick sixes were big, unquote. Evansdale capitalized off of UNI turnovers, off the jump as Marvin Coleman picked Bowen Bourne's pocket and set up Gage Boby for a three-pointer on the Aces' first possession. Evansville spent the remainder of the contest in the lead. The Panthers' offense struggled to get going as they went just 9 of 20 from the field and 2 of 10 from three-point range, with 11 turnovers in the first half. and I's shooting woes allowed the Asians to take 43-26 lead into the locker room at halftime. As poorly as the Panthers played throughout the first 20 minutes, they rallied to open the second half, including a Titan Anderson jumper with 33 seconds left in the first half. I outscored Evansville 12-0 over a 7.5-minute span, during which Panthers turned the ball over just once, according to Jacobson, the Panthers wanted to adjust to a more physical and aggressive brand of defense in the second half. The adjustments worked as the rally allowed you and I to cut the lead to 43 to 36, with 13 minutes remaining. But the Panthers' turnover troubles returned, which ended the rally, according to Jacobson who noted he felt the Panthers played well enough defensively during the rally to tie the game. Quote, we turned it over and then we turned it over the play after that, Jacobson said. They had not scored yet and we had the ball. We turned it over and they got a run out. They were able to get two points when we did not have our defense back, Unquote. A Chris Moncrief dunk broke the Aces' cold spell, and allowed Evansdale to ward off UNI's comeback to secure their first win in the conference play this season. Quote, the challenge is to be able to put this one behind us, Jacobson said. Give Evansville credit. They played a good game. This is how they have been playing for a couple of weeks now. We were not able to play good enough basketball to keep even for a long time, until we could hit a little run to get ahead, unquote. Titan Anderson provided a lone bright spot for the Panthers. After struggling to find an offensive rhythm during the first three games of UNI's skid, the North Scott product led the Panthers in scoring with fourteen points, and added to his league leading double double totals, with twelve rebounds. Jacobson welcomed the sight of a revitalization of his front court star. Quote, he was aggressive, both going to the boards and getting some baskets for us at the rim, Jacobson said, "It has been about ten days since he got some baskets for us at the rim, since he has had the opportunity to get that involved in the game." It was good to see. Unquote. The Panthers return home for their next chance to break out of their current losing streak. You and I hosts Indiana State on Saturday at 1 p.m. Before in-state rival Drake comes to the McLeod Center next Wednesday. Quote, for us, we have to be able to put this one behind us because we have a good team coming in on Saturday, Jacobson said. We have an opportunity to go home and protect our home floor. We need that to be our focus, unquote. Now, a story about college wrestling. Bravado takes center stage in advance of ISU-UNI duel. Dateline Ames, Iowa State head wrestling coach Kevin Dresser pulled out his phone, and highlighted a text. It came from Northern Iowa head coach Doug Schwab, who sent it at 4.28 p.m. Sunday after his team beat West Virginia 20-12 to in Morgantown. It was short and pointed, with an expletive playfully attached. Quote, it's on, blank, Dresser quoted Schwab's saying, while declining to fill in the blank. Dresser's comments came following comments made by Schwab during the UNI head coach's weekly press conference on Monday. Dresser's number 3 Cyclones seek a fourth straight win against the 14th-ranked Panthers at 7 p.m. Friday at the McLeod Center in Cedar Falls. Schwab said Dresser played up the intense in-state rivalry as usual this week, with the former once again jokingly threatening the latter with physical harm and the latter responding with an array of flashcards to visually represent his response. Quote, I love a healthy rivalry, Schwab said, which means we respect each other, but we don't give an inch, we don't give a quarter, we don't give nothing, we respect them. Quote, that is where you have to find us as a competitor. I look at it, I will fight you for everything. I'll fight Dresser. I'll put Dresser down if I have to, then he's like, that's all you can make fun of me. Well, you are old, so I can make fun of you on that. His hair is thinning a little bit. I'm sure he'll make fun of me, too. I took exception at fight night because he brought me a diet Mountain Dew. I'm still pissed about, unquote. Quote, but they have a really good team. They are solid up and down, finished Swab. So consider it a good, clean fun, and... Emblematic of the mutual respect the former national champions for Iowa share as coaches, Quote, I think there's a lot of friendly banter, and I obviously feel like we're the better team," said ISU heavyweight Sam Schuler, who cemented last season's 16-15 dual win over the Panthers with a late takedown. Quote, I think we're really going to show that, and I think it's going to be a really fun match. Hopefully another sold-out arena doesn't come down to me, but if it does, I'm ready, unquote. Shuler's rise to prominence this season comes down to grit. He's ranked fifth nationally at heavyweight and has built an identity as a closer. Last weekend, the former transfer from Buffalo scored a takedown with 15 seconds remaining against then number 5 Dayton Pitzer to seal ISU's latest 16-15 16-15 to 15 road win against those other Panthers. Shuler will likely get a top-15 matchup when he grapples with UNI's Terrell Gordon in one of many ranked bouts up and down the lineup. Quote, truly there is, and Swab said it, there's a lot of respect, there's a lot of fun, there's a lot of poking, Dresser said. But when we get there, we know what's going to be. They're going to want to take our heads off and we're going to have to be ready for that, and we've got to take their heads off. It's going to be a heck of a duel meet for fans to watch. Unquote. The Cyclones, 14-2, and 6-0 and 0 in the Big 12, feature five wrestlers ranked in the top 10 and three lurking to get to the top 27. The Panthers showcase two top 10 wrestlers and six others ranked between 11th and 24th. The marquee matchup will come at 184 pounds, where U.N.I.'s second-ranked Parker Kekisen is set to scrap with I.S.U.'s fourth-ranked Marcus Coleman, but it remains highly likely the outcome will hinge on the final match or two. Enter Schuler if necessary, as Schwab texted, "It's on," and Schuler relishes taking control in the final moments, especially in a highly charged atmosphere against a strong in-state foe. Quote, I think being a heavyweight is just part of what it is, Schuler said. It doesn't scare me. I, it used to. Dresser likes to say, I used to poop my pants a little bit, but now I'm ready for that. Unquote. Now let's continue reading local news from the Courier. In a story filed by Jeff Reinitz, Jerome Amos files for bankruptcy. Dateline Waterloo. Waterloo's newest statehouse representative, has filed for bankruptcy. Jerome Amos Jr. filed for Chapter 13 on Tuesday, a day before his Ricker Street home was to go up for a sheriff's sale as part of a mortgage foreclosure. The filing removed the house from the sale pending the outcome of the bankruptcy case. Quote, I'm restructuring my debt. I'm saving my home, the legislator said in a phone interview with The Courier. I'm doing the right things. Amos, a John Deere retiree and Hawkeye Community College instructor, was elected in November to the Iowa House District 62 seat. His term in the legislature began last month. Amos claimed $93,700 in liabilities in his bankruptcy, mainly mortgage and an auto loan, and $11,900 in tax debt. U.S. Bank filed for foreclosure in May of 2022. Amos had been a member of the Waterloo City Council for several years, and his departure from the council triggered a special election for the ward four-seat. Next, man convicted in Waterloo meth trafficking operation, filed by Jeff Reinitz. Dateline Waterloo, a Mexican national, is facing a possible life sentence for allegedly overseeing a large-scale network that moved meth into Waterloo. Authorities allege a Sinola-based drug trafficking organization sent Luis Carlos Corral Lopez, 31, of Caborca to Waterloo in 2020, and he supplied a succession of distributors with meth. During an investigation into the ring, agents found pounds of meth and fentanyl hidden behind drywall in the basement of a Waterloo home. It was one of the largest fentanyl seizures in Iowa. On Thursday, a jury found Corell guilty of one count of conspiracy to distribute meth following three days of testimony and five hours of deliberation in U.S. District Court in Cedar Rapids. Sentencing will be at a later date. The investigation goes back to late 2019, when authorities began a probe into the Daniel manares Drug Trafficking Organization, which involved Waterloo residents driving to California to pick up pounds of meth that were mailed to Iowa and then the use of rail cars to move hundreds of pounds of the drug in the summer of 2020. People involved in the operation also drove drug proceeds to a home in Cicero, Illinois, in October of 2020. When Illinois police approached the Cicero address a month later, they found Corral, who initially gave officers a fake name. Authorities said Corral later delivered several pounds of meth to Drew Scarsborough, who was the organization's contact in Waterloo, during meetings in the parking lot of a Cedar Falls Hy-Vee supermarket. Court records state, when Scarborough was arrested, Levi Dull took his place and Corral directed shipments, a total of 18 to 20 pounds, to him, court records state. In the summer of 2021, Narciso Chinchilla Sanchez replaced Corral, taking over his involvement in Waterloo, according to court records. Police raided Chinchilla Sanchez's Waterloo home on October 25, 2021, and found 90 pounds of meth, and almost 23 pounds of fentanyl, including 34,380 pills containing fentanyl. Corral remained at large until June 5, 2022, when he was arrested crossing into the United States from Mexico, record state. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, February 10th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can access a recording of today's reading or those from other newspapers around the state on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.